I want to be able to jump into your questions because I think it's important to have dialogues about faith and God and the massive questions that we have in life. Um, I'll give you a bit of uh, a bit of my story, fill in the details while you're thinking about uh, your questions or the things that you might be wrestling with, or a friend or family member might be wrestling with. I always say that at our church, you know, when we gather in a meeting, you don't want to, you know, seem like that person. So it's like, hey, I know they're not your questions, but maybe your friends have these questions, so you can ask them for your friends. So because we've all got a friend. Hopefully. Uh, so, uh, anyway, uh, yeah, my story, as Gail talked about, uh, grew up totally on church home. I, I, I tell the story in the book to illustrate it to people that my uh, my brother's name is Matthew. My father was so antagonistic toward the Bible and the gospel, he said, we're going to spell Matthew's name with one T because we don't want to be biblical. We don't want to spell it like the gospel of Matthew. And then they made me Mark, so literally he never opened a Bible before because I'm pretty sure I, if I had a brother, they go around Luke. I think Luke's a good name. Um, and so the reality is he was so against the Bible, against God, against all this stuff. And I became a Christian at 17 or 18, spent two years just studying the Gospels, trying to figure Jesus out, and then entered a church when I was 19. I didn't ever want to go to a church. I thought the church would be, like, boring, just, you know, just, like, just mothballs smelling and orange carpets. and Just everyone would be, like, 300 years old. And, uh, and that's what I thought it was going to be. And then I went to church, and it was exactly like that. It was crazy. Uh, but uh, I also met some people there who were kind of my age, and they were wrestling with the kinds of questions I was around. I mean, I've always been a doubter. I've always been a skeptic. I've always been the, the first day in youth group. It was like 40 questions, right? It was boom, boom, boom. How can the Trinity be a thing? That doesn't make any sense. The youth pastor was like, dude, just stop talking. Just, you know, accept things. And I was like, no, that's not how I am. So... I always have to question and challenge everything, which clearly, uh, if you're here and you have honest, sincere doubts and questions, then that's you too. So that's cool. Um, and so anyway, I, I finally wrestled. I had to, when I was 15, my father died of uh, lung cancer. My parents divorced. I was 9 or 10 years old. I developed Tourette's syndrome, which grew into obsessive compulsive disorder. So I, so if you see my face kind of ticking around up here, don't be like, oh, you must have allergies. It's actually like Tourette's. But I used to swear a lot of people, like randomly like sit at a bus stop and just like, eh, you know, just say, eh, like literally swear. And so the last job you're going to get when you randomly throw an F-bomb down at people is a pastor and a preacher, all right? That's literally, that job is not going to work. Uh, and so anyway, uh, God used it anyway, and so I have residue, so that's what's going on. But I had to wrestle through the massive questions of faith and, and science and philosophy and history and the Bible uh, and the things in my life, I had to come to terms with that when I'm losing my father at 15 and I have to wrestle with these questions. He had never taught me these things and so on. So um, I started investigating uh, science and philosophy and history and literature and so on. And, and, and all the marketplace of ideas and comparing religions and worldviews and so on and faith positions. And I came to see personally that, that Christianity made the most sense in the marketplace of ideas. And so I gave my life to it. I spent two years studying it myself and then finally showed up to a church and stayed because I met people like myself. Then I became a pastor. Uh, I got a call to ministry. I, some people came around me and they said, I think you should go into ministry. I went to my parents and I said, hey, I think I should do this. They said, ministry? Well, that's not a thing. Well, why are you doing this? I'm like, I don't know. They said, is there any money in it? I'm like, I don't know. It turns out there's not. Uh, and so I was like, but this is what I want to do. So I started doing it. And then my wife and I moved to Vancouver. We're, all, we're from Toronto. We're from Ajax. I don't know you guys know Ajax. Ajax, she's from Pickering. And uh, we moved out to uh, Vancouver in 2004, thought we were going to be there for two years, and then go to Britain, and God calls to plant a church. And so in 2010, we planted a church. 
uh, with a group of people, and, and Gail read some of the, the stuff, I guess, someone sent her from my bio. So anyways, that's kind of my story. Um, I'm, I'm similar to you. I, I want, if, you're, if you're a skeptic, if you doubt, I get it. Um, God isn't, he, it's not like this, where it's like, God, this post, there, you know, it's, that's not how this works. And so the minute you have that, you have a gap. And so the minute you have a gap, you have to fill it with something. We're all going to fill it with something. And so that's what we're all here trying to do in life is explore what do we fill the gap with. And, uh, and that's legitimate. And so I want to get to your questions and the things that you're working through and the doubts that you have uh, and, and help if I can. If I don't know the answer, um, if it's something I've never thought of or whatever, I'll just say I don't know. Um, maybe suggest a resource or something, but I'll help you to the best of my ability or point you uh, toward the right direction. So does that sound okay, Gail? So we'll just open it up to you guys to ask whatever questions. And, you know, if you don't have any, then we'll uh, get a cup of coffee and uh, call it a night. So anyway, thanks for having me. So I'm sure you got questions. So. You know, there's not that relationship anymore. But then, so the biblical story is a story of God trying to get us back to a place where the presence of God is among people, but he's got to remove sin. So the story goes with Israel and Jesus and so on. And so, um, so right now, uh, it, it, there is a gap. There is, there is a, there's a limit to our knowledge and understanding. There is a bit of a mystery. But I don't always see that as a bad thing. And what I mean by that is we're post-enlightenment thinkers. So everything we think about is there has to be facts, there has to be data, there has to be answers. But you go back to the Renaissance, and that's not how they thought at all. Uh, there's something about mystery that seems to be okay, and I think we need to leverage it in our own lives. And what I mean by that is, um, and so, okay, let me give you, I don't know if there's any Star Wars fans in the house. Okay, there's one. We're just embarrassed, so we're not going to admit it. There's others of you. You're just always there. There's other geeks in the house, not just me and him. Uh, so, um, okay, so take the original Star Wars. Uh, you take the three original movies of New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. Uh, the Force is this vague concept where there's a bit of a mystery to it. We all love it. We like we lean into the mystery. We're like, we don't have all the answers to this. We don't know why Vader has more force power than these other, we don't know. Fine, great, we're all in. But then they make the Phantom Menace and the Phantom Menace comes out and George Lucas all of a sudden says, you know what, I'm gonna answer that question. And he tells this story about how Darth Vader as Anakin Skywalker has more midichlorians in his cells than anybody else and that's why he has more power than everyone else. And everyone goes, I hate Star Wars, Phantom Menace, because it answered too many questions. There's no mystery in it anymore. There's like this, he, he just told me what it was. And I think there's some, who, who like Lost here, right? You guys ever watch the show Lost? 
All right, with like you watch the first season of Lost, you're like, this is the greatest show ever made. Second season, greatest show ever made. Third season, greatest show. Then it starts to go, and you watch it for the last few seasons, you're like, this show's terrible. I liked it better when there was mystery. I liked it better when I didn't know where that polar bear was coming from. Now they're giving me answers, and I don't even like this show anymore. I think there's something that we as post-enlightenment thinkers, we actually have to understand that there's a richness to life that God is gifting to us with the gap. And we can't just always force the issue and say, there has to be answers the way I want answers right now, the way I want them. We can't understand everything the way he's, you know, he's planned it, the way he's relating to us. And there has to be a bit of humility. And I think most people throughout history, most cultures throughout history have understood that way better than us. So if you take the question of evil and suffering, most people, and we can talk about that if that's one of your issues, it was one of my issues, continues to be one of my issues that I wrestle with. But most cultures throughout history wouldn't look at who, who suffered a lot more than us just by basic, like they didn't have stuff to be able to deal with illness and they lived awful lives. People would die in childbirth. And, but rarely do you read a philosopher back in the ancient times and he goes, there's so much evil and suffering, ergo, God doesn't exist. What the philosophers did was, there's so much evil and suffering, man, we're limited in what we can understand. The gods must be doing something I don't get. But we get to a post-enlightenment thing, and we start putting everything through a scientific method, and we think having the answers is the ultimate reality. And, and I'm not so sure. Every culture, every, 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 all throughout history, people have actually leaned into the mystery and recognized it as part of being human. So I think that's part of the reason there's a bit of a gap. Okay, anything else? <laughs> Hopefully. Yes? Um, in our small group, we've been talking a lot about different religions and how um, we believe that religion all started with one, one God and one concept of God and that different religions have developed because of man's perceptions and rules and societal mm-hmm. influences. How do you feel about that? I'm just talking about like the differences between Christianity, Roman, um, Roman Catholic, mm-hmm. versus um, Hinduism, Buddhism. Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. And and cultures do tend to shape uh, religious thought. Often, if you look at uh, it's unique about Christianity actually in the history of religions. Most religions. Um, continue even now, even with globalization and the travel of people, uh, continue to almost sit at the, at, the, at the epicenters of where they started. Uh, so if you look at Islam, it's, it's mostly Middle Eastern still. If you look at Hinduism, it's very popular. Buddhism, you look in the, the, uh, the Eastern uh, uh, cultures, you look at uh, um, yeah, d- different, different kind of cultures create religious epicenters. And pretty well, even now, they've stayed there. Christianity is interesting because it began Jewish in the Middle East. Uh, it moved to like a Greco-Roman thing, like it filled all of Rome. Then it became European. Then it moved across to North America. And then in the last 50 years, it's actually moved down to Latin America, Africa, and China. That's actually the, 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 the fastest movement of Christianity isn't like North America. It's dead in North America. It's China. That's the fastest move of Christianity the history of the world has ever seen. 
the underground church where it's basically illegal to be a Christian. They've nationalized all the buildings, killed all the leaders, and it's the fastest growing thing. Uh, it's the fastest growing movement of Christianity. So I think what's interesting about Christianity is it can it adapts it into the cultures it's in because it's not really tied to um, the way that you deal, you, you're a particular race. It's a geopolitical thing. Um, and so, uh, but I would agree with you. I think cultures do impact the different religions that, that come about. And, um, but saying that doesn't necessarily mean that something is wrong. And, and what I mean by that is, um, I talk about this in the book, Alvin Plantinga, who's a philosopher, points out that there's a lot of people who would come against a Christian and say, well, you're just a Christian because you were born in Louisiana, let's say, right? That's why you're a Christian. You're not a Christian because it's true. You're a Christian just because you were born in America. And he says, okay, it's an interesting point. It doesn't invalidate my Christianity because if I was to say to you that you're a Muslim because you were born in Morocco, does that necessitate that you're therefore wrong? Or does it simply point out a fact? It's not a fact that's delving into anything. It's simply pointing out that your culture that you existed within actually influenced you in the way that you thought. It doesn't follow that, therefore, it's wrong. So, uh, and, and his point is, in postmodern thought, postmodernity that doesn't believe in truth says, there is no truth. The only reason you're a Christian is because you were born in Canada. And he says, okay, but you're a postmodernist because you were born in Canada. Does that mean postmodernism is wrong? So if you're going to say all truth is relative, don't you know you're just a Christian because you were born in America? He would say, well, you're a postmodernist who thinks all truth is relative. We're the only culture in the world that's ever thought that. And the only reason you believe that is because you were born in Canada and you watched CNN and sat around with your parents around the dinner table and had a conversation. And they told you all truth is relative. There's no such thing as truth. You're a product of the world you existed within. Does that mean, ergo, you're wrong? No. It just means our culture is impacted. And so I think it's, it's important to understand context to say religions grow out of certain areas, but we still have to ask the question, what's right? What's true? If that's a legitimate question to ask anymore, which is part of the tension. So do you think that Allah and Buddha and God are all the same and that the rules around the religion are man-made? I, no, I don't think. Uh, you mean like metaphysically the same? Like, like actually the same? No. No, I think, I think, um, I think every, and I don't think those religions would claim that. So I think when people want to come in and say, so what happens is, is we as Canadians, and this is actually what I'm going to be talking about at Connexus on Sunday morning, the question of exclusivity and how that kind of rubs us the wrong way. As Canadians, we want to say all religions are the same because we don't want to be mean-spirited, which is fair, but all those religions would actually take great offense to us saying they're all the same. Like you don't want to sit around with a Muslim and a Jew who've been fighting over land in the Middle East for the, and lost their grandparents over it and go, don't worry everyone, everyone's the same. We're all going to end up in heaven, right everyone? Hurrah! Everyone will be like, are you nuts? My grandparents died for that. And so it's almost the ultimate offense to say all religions are the same. I think the better route is be an atheist and say they're all wrong. Don't say they're all right. Because that's going to break down logically the minute you go below the concept of like 
You should treat people well. But they disagree on God, hell, salvation, the afterlife. Like these are things they all contradict each other on. And so, um, so I think the religions are comfortable with it. I tell the story in the book of Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City. And he's on the stage with a Muslim imam, a Jewish rabbi, and he's a Christian pastor. And the university students are asking, you know, which religion to choose, the concept. And, they, and all of these leaders agreed that if my concept of God is right, those two guys are wrong. Okay, all three of them agreed with that. And the university students said, this is appalling. I can't believe it. This is so offensive. How can you say that? Don't you know you're all right? And they're all like, what? No, are you joking? If I'm right, he's totally not going to heaven. Like, totally not. Like, he's, he's, if, if, if Islam and Judaism, let's take those two as examples. They have a Unitarian vision of God, which is God is a strict oneness. There's no plurality in God at all. All of a sudden, Christianity comes along and goes, oh, yes, God is one, but he's three. What do you mean? He's one, but he's three. What do you mean he's three? Well, actually, he became a human being in the person of Jesus. Blasphemy, going to hell. That's what Judaism would say. That's what Islam would say. Straight up. There's no sense pretending that we're all thinking the same thing just so we can get through Thanksgiving dinner. If we're actually trying to get to what's actually true. So I understand the spirit behind that kind of inclusivism that wants everyone. It's like we live in a pluralistic society. Let's stop fighting each other. So I'll give you an example of this because I love the spirit of it and I grew up in the spirit of it. So I was golfing. So I'll just try to point out the logical breakdown of this this concept. Um, so I was golfing with a guy uh, probably a month ago. I was uh, it was we were away for Christmas in Palm Springs, and we went golfing. And uh, my my buddy brought a friend. I didn't know him. About the 14th, 15th hole, he says, uh, "Hey, are you, what do you do for a living?" I said, "I'm a pastor." He goes, "Oh, really? Right?" And I was like, "Oh, here we go." And so he kind of starts coming at me with like. You know, how can you say you're the, your way is the only way? And isn't that mean-spirited? And so, so we started to talk through that. And uh, I said, well, you know, let's just start with, draw, just rewind the clock for a second. Let's just talk about what's logical and whether there's logical contradiction. Because if you're going to say two religions that believe totally opposite things are both true at the same time, I'm going to say that's not a logical possibility. And can we agree that finding out what's logically true is actually important? And he goes, well, what do you mean? I said, okay, so for instance, you're a numbers guy because he told me what he was an accountant. I said, okay, so what's two plus two? And he said, four. I said, okay, always? Like in reality, in the metaphysical cosmos of the laws of math, somewhere out there, <laughs> what's actually true is two plus two equals what? He said, four. I said, okay, what if your daughter comes home tomorrow from school and says, you know, I feel offended by this exclusivist phraseology that you're trying to, you know, you know, uh, objectify me with. I think two plus two is five. What would you say? And he actually said to me that I'm, uh, that I'm fine with her saying two plus two is five. Where, where are we, I don't, what, what do you, but it's not. I know that, but that's what I say. That's my own personal view that it's not. So my question is, logic starts to break down when we start to go down that route. So I'm not even at that point arguing Christianity is true. I'm simply saying, let's just agree that we're actually trying to get to what is a logical possibility rather than an illogical conclusion about things. I'm wearing socks or I'm not wearing socks. 
it can't be both at the same time. One person's right, one person's wrong. So anyway, so that's kind of the starting point for the discussion of religions. We all have to start with the, from the place of either an atheistic view that says they're all wrong. You're all completely wrong. There is no God. There's no salvation. There's no heaven. We die. Boom. That's it. It's like before you were born. Or there might be one or two that have like the most true ideas. But let's not say they're all right. That's the violation of logic. So anyway, that's how I would think to that. Great question. Okay, next question. I'm a public high school teacher and a Christian, and I'm I'm just fascinated by the progressive agenda in Ontario education and throughout Canada. And uh, the biggest complaint leveled against Christianity in my context that I hear is that it's so exclusive, right? And how can you believe that just Christ is, that, that he is the only way? And what and you're probably going to talk about this on Sunday, but, I mean, Christ is love. But when you look at Christ's, Christ is the only way to get to to God and salvation, and yet Christ, Jesus was so, uh, you know, embracing and so open and loving, right? And somehow denominational Christianity has just spun it in such a hostile way that yeah. we're left kind of hamstrung, right? And when someone objects to that mm-hmm. exclusivity, uh, we've got 500 years of church history to, to condemn us yeah. with how it's treated. Let, so, yeah. Um, change the narrative. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, coming back to my earlier point, I think you have, one of the things I talk about in the book is you have cultural pluralism, which is like, hey, we all belong to different cultures. We love that. We want that. In fact, I think Christians should fight for other religions' right at a political level to believe what they want to believe. I think we need to actually partner with um, with with Muslims and Marxists and when when, it, when there's like a legitimate issue that needs to be dealt with from a Christian worldview to bring shalom to the world and peace and so on. So I think that kind of pluralism, beautiful. It's, it's when it steps into what scholars call metaphysical pluralism that we have the problem. So cultural pluralism, awesome, let's do it. Metaphysical pluralism, which is a belief of the afterlife, heaven, God, salvation, that kind of pluralism starts to break down. And that's where I think the, the wrong direction is. So I think we should, we should try to go after what's most true by doing our history study, our philosophy, our psychology our, our literary study is the Bible actually legit? This thing contradicts itself all over the place. Throw it out. Let's do all that study to find out what's actually true, not just settle with, well, you know, I'm 22 and this is what I've been exposed to and, and I feel like I'm right and you're 40 and you've been exposed to that and you're right. And, well, all right, it's all fine. Let's just move on with life and ride the bus together. And it's like, I get the cultural, the cultural part. I get that. But it's when we all stop talking because there's no... What's, what's the point of even dialogue? What's the point of delving into anything? Because we've, we've just all figured it out. We're all fine. There's no point in pushing back on each other for anything. So I think that's the, the, the thing we have to stay away from and we have to challenge. Um, now, it's the easier route. So for the most part, I can see why society will go down that route. But I do think there is a movement afoot um, and people are starting to notice it on the internet. Um, there's a movement afoot where I think generationally millennials 
have lived in this weird, vacuous, gray, pluralistic world, and now they're starting to react and kick against it. Um, with almost an, they're starting to move the dial back and go, whoa, 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 this is getting absurd. Like language is starting to break down. People can't even, they don't even know how to talk anymore. They don't know how to phrase things. They, titles are being taken away. Language is being deconstructed. Uh, politicians are defining what people can say and not say. And people are starting to feel like a cultural unrest, like, this is kind of freaking me out here. And so people have started to push back and go, wait a minute, how far does this go before society start breaking down? So it's an interesting movement that I think we're going to see happen in the next 10 or 20 years. I don't know where it's going to go, but I think that's part of the conversation. So, And you'll see it in the education system for sure. Yeah. Okay, next question. I work for immigration. Yeah. Uh, mine has to do with pain and suffering. Um, I used to believe it's free will. When I uh, I started seeing different people not knowing somebody, like a victim, yeah. they'll break in, sexually assault them, they carve stars in their stomachs. A guy, you know, his two daughters sexually assaulted them for two years, 10 and 12 years old. And I'm thinking, where was that victim or those kids' free will? Yeah. You know, and what kind of future do they have ahead of them? And where is God for those those kids, those yeah. two little girls, for example? Yeah. And uh, I have kids myself. And I don't know if, how could God allow that to happen to children? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's a great question. One of the deeper ones that I've wrestled with in my life. If you guys couldn't hear it, it's, it's basically the question of deep evil and suffering that we see in the world, the abuse of children and so on. How could how could God actually, uh, how is this even a, a possibility that this stuff would run rampant in the world? And so, um, so I think there's a few ways that, and again, part of the answer is this, this like sitting humbly at the mystery of it a bit. That's part of part of it. But then part of it is actually starting to process the question. So for instance, when when my dad passed away and I'm 15 and I'm standing you know at his funeral over his casket and I'm looking, um, I start to ask the big questions of the universe. Why does this feel not like just something that happened, but something that feels disjointed about the world? Something that's off. But then it raised the question for me why I'm even asking the question. So oftentimes we look at evil and suffering and we see it as an as a, a evidence against the existence of God. But as scholars have pointed out and philosophers throughout time, the very fact that we're asking the question is actually starting to point toward the existence of God. Because if you don't have God to tell us that these things are a violation, that my, that my dad dying is actually, it's not just something that feels off to me, it's actually something that feels off about reality. It feels, what am I comparing that to? If I look at a tsunami that wipes out 250,000 people in a day or kids that are getting hurt, what in my moral construct is causing me to say that this is wrong, definitively? This is evil, this is broken, this is something that's not right. If my moral construct has only been constructed through naturalism, for instance, Darwinian progression, if that's how I know that this feels wrong, then I wouldn't necessarily 
always think it's wrong. I mean, sometimes nature is brutal. Uh, you look into nature and, and, and children uh, die and races get uh, abused. And if that's what actually wired my moral compass and my categories, then I wouldn't necessarily deduce that always helping your enemy is a good thing and it's a value and it's an honor. It's almost like someone that transcends nature gave me a category that says abusing kids is awful and it's not right and humanity is broken because there's no other, at least philosophers would argue, great explanation for why we feel in our being that this is actually wrong. So the very question that C.S. Lewis talked about this, he said, I wanted to put God on trial for all the evil and suffering in the world. But the minute I put him on trial, I asked myself, where did I even get the category to put him on trial? Where did I get the category of evil and suffering? If he didn't give it to me, then I don't even have it to put him on trial. There's no other good explanation. So the, asking the question itself is actually part of the issue that raises in me when I'm standing with my dad's casket, I'm saying to myself, why am I even asking this question? Who gave me this sense of right and wrong? Justice and injustice. Where did it even come from? And uh, and I think it's it's stitched into us. I think that's one of the pointers to the existence of God is that God gave us objective moral values that told us these things are awful. Um, now to come to your to your point about uh, I think it is free will. I think people then carry on. I think people make decisions. I think awful things happen in the world. Um, and and the thing about it is Christianity isn't the only faith that it's not the worldview that has to answer this question. Every worldview has to answer this question. So an atheist answer, for instance, that, well, the reason is, is because God doesn't exist comes back to what I just said. Then why are we even asking the question? Uh, every a Buddhist has to answer the question of evil and suffering. Hinduism has to answer the, the question of evil and suffering. So the question we now start to go down is in the marketplace of ideas, whose answer is the best? I was in India, and I watched girls out on the street with children begging for money and kids abused with no arms, and I went to help them, and our guide said, don't help them. And I said, why? And they said, because the cycle of karma has to do its thing on them. If karma doesn't pay them back in this life, then they'll have to relive all this over again. So you literally have a cycle within Hinduism that will keep people oppressed and enslaved for the rest of their life with no help based on a theological conviction. Well, immediately, I'm going to say to myself, in the marketplace of ideas, this is actually not the best. So now I go to the next one. And I go down the line and I find within Christianity not necessarily an answer to every moment of evil and suffering. But what I do find is a God that entered in, in the person of Jesus, entered in. This is unique within the marketplace of ideas. He became a human, entered into suffering. God abused himself, took on awful disgrace, hung up. I, I, I watched a preacher cry on stage because he realized that his sexual abuse... Jesus could identify with it because he was stripped naked publicly. You're not wearing one of those towels like the movies. They put those on so we can go watch the movie and not be completely rated R. He wasn't wearing a towel. Jesus stripped naked and he said, he knows what it's like to be sexually abused, just like me. This is a God who entered into every pain, every agony and took it on himself. He didn't stay distant like the gods of other religions. Every religion says this, work your way to God and maybe he'll accept you one day. Christianity says, 
Christianity says God came down to you to do what you could not do for yourself and suffered immense awfulness and let evil and suffering do its worst to him. Dealt with it and offers hope on the other side of it to say, there's going to be a new world. It hasn't happened yet. Uh, First Peter talks about the idea that people are like, why haven't you come back yet? How, how bad do you want things to get? The world is awful, and the fact that you haven't come back yet means you don't exist. And Peter's answer is the reason he's delaying is, is because he wants as many to hear as possible. The reason he's delaying is it's grace is he has so much restraint. He wants to come down so hard on the awful people that you're talking about, injustice and vengeance, and he will. But he delays because he wants as many people as possible before they die to actually come to faith in Jesus. I came to faith in 1997 as a 17-year-old. I'm lucky Jesus didn't come back in 1996. That's why he delays. Because he's like, I'm holding on, I'm holding on. It's killing me here, literally. It's killing me, it killed me. So I think if I'm looking at Christianity, I'm saying it doesn't answer every single moment of suffering the world's ever seen. It doesn't have a great... That's why you read the book of Job. And the end of the book of Job, it's like you get 40 chapters of why do you allow suffering? Why is there so much suffering? Why is there suffering? And the answer, and all his friends come around him and they're like, well, this is why. You're an unrighteous person. And so bad things happen to you. And then the next guy comes and he goes, I'll tell you why. Because God doesn't like you. And then the next guy. And then the book ends with God showing up and going, okay, can everyone stop talking for a second? I got some questions. Job. Where were you when I thought up snowflakes? Where were you when I thought up the idea of lightning? Oh, right. You're so small that you don't even know. But here's, I'm God. And don't come and, and, and come at me when you, there has to be a bit of a humility based on what you know as you trudge into the massive question. And that's where he leaves it. It doesn't even answer the question. But it points to there's a time coming where I'm going to come and do it. So what I'm saying is I don't think Christianity answers every single moment. But what it does say is in the personal work of Jesus, I think Christianity in the marketplace of ideas is the best answer, which is he didn't stay distant. He entered into the pain and agony and suffering and took it on himself. And that for me, when I studied it, gave me the most hope and the most understanding of the whole issue. And so that's how I've tried to wrestle through that question. Um, and, and I, I deal with it as I meet people and as I pastor people who go through awful things. Uh, and one of the issues is, look, I don't know why your son, why a car hit your son and he died. I, I'm not going to tell you, I, I'm not going to tell you, don't worry because God wants to use your testimony. But that's, not, that's not the role of me in that moment. My role is to go, I don't know. I'm going to cry with you, love you, enter into the mystery with you. But I know Jesus came and died and took on something and can give you hope in the midst of this. And that I find to put steel in my spine when I wake up in the morning versus, I don't know, the universe is cold and dark. Sorry. So that's how I've tried to wrestle with that question. Really good question. Yeah. Yeah, question for you. So this is kind of like a micro and macro side to it. So first, the micro, which is really comes into your part about the problem with science, right? So, and really look at the, the leaders in the field of science and explain that they don't necessarily see the conflict between the existence of God like most people, right? But actually, they probably have more people who, you know, will support that idea than the actual science. So, my question is, when people go to university, right, to study as an undergraduate, 
oftentimes the struggle there is uh, really to maintain your faith, right? Most people will lose their faith. And this is I'm not looking at it from a from a cultural side, where right where people are away from their culture, so they don't really explore their own, right? But I'm talking about actually being in class, right? People being challenged by their views. So it seems that the people who are writing the textbooks don't really struggle with the faith question as much as people reading the textbooks. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's just my question for you, right? I mean, why isn't it the other way around where people go and they start, you know, challenging their thoughts and why is it that they're not like, you know, oh man, I found this out in my biology class, so therefore I'm going to church this weekend, right? I know a couple guys who became Christians during university, but it wasn't because of what they saw in class, right? Sure. It's kind of this, this middle ground. Yeah, it's a good question. So if I can reframe the question from the new here, why do people... It seems like, uh, and tell me if I'm, I'm, if I'm framing this right, it seems like the, the statistics are more, I, I went to university and lost my faith, versus I went to university, saw all these wonderful things in science, and became a Christian, and started going to church. So why is it like that? So is that pretty, uh, pretty well the summary of the question? More or less. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, so one of the things that, that um, we have to wrestle with is uh, the pushback of what Leslie Newman had called the myth of a secular society, which is that story might be true experientially for us. Like, I know a guy, but statistically that's not always true. And so Leslie Newman pointed out, he said, there was this myth back in the day that the more society becomes civilized and delves into science and biology and cosmology, the more secular it will become and religion will be dead. That was the theory. And everyone thought that in the 60s. Uh, we're going to delve into science and, and God will die. And you know, so, um, but what's happened is, is there's a lot of amazing university professors um, and work being done in these disciplines and students who are in those disciplines. And I have a couple on my staff um, who, who actually find God in the science that the deeper they delve into biology and see coded information, it causes them to go, oh wow. So you got people like John Polkinghorne and John Lennox at Oxford and Cambridge, who are these brilliant mathematicians and theists. You have, you know, Francis called these guys who like, they're like, the deeper I delved into biology, Francis Collins literally became a Christian because of his delving into the depth of biology, mapping out the human genome and all that, going, oh my goodness, this is like, there's a code this is crazy. There's a look. Come over here. There's a language. Someone, someone actually. There's a code in every cell that's like actual information to the point where the only the good explanation. There's a. Have you guys seen the movie uh, Prometheus? Anyone seen the movie? Okay. So yeah, that's why. Yeah. So uh, Prometheus, Ridley Scott movie. It's a it's a prequel to Alien. And the opening scene confused everybody. And the opening scene was this weird alien with a big forehead. And he was messing around with a little thing and he dropped it in the water. And then the movie continued. I was like, what is that about? Well, that's actually a theory. Because people have looked at DNA and said, this is so much coded intelligent information. There's either God. And people go, we don't like that. There's aliens. So there's a whole slew of people who think that the coded information in DNA means there's aliens because they put us here. That's what the opening scene of Prometheus is. It's the theory that aliens encoded information because the code, the, the information points to somebody with a mind actually did this intentionally, encoded information in every living cell. 
And so, and then of course it asks the question, well, where did the aliens come from? And we're back to like, oh boy, okay, gotta be God. So, so there's people who delve into the, 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 the data of, of DNA strands, or they look at cosmology and see the beginning of the universe, as I talk about in the book. It, that leads many people to faith, actually, where they say everything that begins to exist has to have a cause. And then everyone was like, okay, so what's that uncaused, eternal, infinite thing? If everything that begins to exist has to have a cause, like we all are here in this room because our parents who predated us met each other in one night, the candles were nice and whatever. So uh, I'll leave that to you. So you're like, I don't want to think about that. But uh, they, they lived outside of you. They, they did something that caused you to come into existence. So everything that begins to exist... So, well, then what's the infinite, non-contingent, eternal thing that never began to exist? Well, philosophers and scientists said, well, it's the universe. The universe, so you don't need God. It's just, it's the universe. Until the 1920s and 30s when Edward Hubble looked and went, no, actually, we know the universe began to exist 15 billion years ago. All space, all time, energy, space, matter, all came into existence in an instant 15 billion years ago. We know the moment. So it raised this question. Okay, the universe began to exist. Ergo, the universe has to have a cause. And it can't be physical because we know that matter came into existence 15 billion years ago. So it has to be metaphysical. It has to transcend matter. So what is that? It's got to be mind. Jesus comes and teaches John 4. God is spirit. It has to transcend what we know. So people, coming back to your question, sorry, my little rant there, I'm a little offshoot. People are actually doing a lot of study in these areas and saying, my goodness, the more I delved into science, the more I started to see there's rational, logical reasons to actually believe in God and believe in Christianity. And Stanley Grenz uh, points out the analogy of, of Star Trek, not to sound like a total geek, because I've used Star Wars, Star Trek, and Lord of the Rings maybe at some points coming out of that. I don't know. But yeah, yeah. So Star Trek, he points out this, this thing where in the 60s, the Star Trek that came out of the 60s, there was no religion. In it. There's no spirit. There's very little. Like, there's one episode as any kind of spirituality because the premise was in the future there won't be religion because technology will eliminate God. But the next generation that comes out of the 80s and 90s, there's guys in the enterprise centers. Everyone's spiritual. They're meeting spiritual races every time they go. They meet some green girl Picard's trying to hook up with. She's spiritual. She believes in some ancient religion, whatever. Because the 80s and the 90s started to show this isn't going anywhere. That in fact, what the data is showing is there are cultures that are deeply, deeply down the scientific realm that are the robust orthodox religiously. Religion's not going anywhere. Secular society is rising and religion is rising very drastically among people because they're delving into the sciences, not because science is saying, hey, look, science has the answers, ergo, God doesn't. That dichotomy, that old story, has been blown up in the last 20 or 30 years, generally speaking. So so to summarize, essentially the people who are challenged by science regarding the existence of, of a god or god yeah. um, are challenged by it because they haven't studied the data at a deep enough or a high enough level. Oh, um, so the comment is, is it, is it because they haven't studied the data at a deep enough, high enough level and that's why they haven't been convinced of God? Sometimes that's the case. And then sometimes it's just, I have the data, and now my job is interpretation. And my interpretation of the data is this versus this. So, for instance, I have staff members who, 
who are, uh, one of my staff members did a master's degree in biology at, uh, at UBC, University of British Columbia. Full on, like, evolutionary guy, like, totally understands that that's probably what happened at some level. That, but he takes that and he's like, okay, this data isn't causing me to lose faith in God. It helps, it, it, it makes me frame it theologically versus atheistically. So there's an interpretation of data. This piece of data can lead you here, 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 here. And so those are the choices that we then have to start making. So what I'm pointing out to you is that there's a lot of data that actually helps support the case for God versus, I don't know actually, like, and of course this room might know, and kind of risky saying this, I don't, I don't, I don't know like a bunch of scientific conclusions that would say, ergo, God doesn't exist. And so those things start to work together, I think, and will continue to work together. Unless, of course, there's some amazing scientific conclusion that there's no way this is true and God can exist at the same time, then we'll have a problem. But until that time, I don't think we've seen anything that, in fact, all of it, I mean, a mathematician's going to go, I mean, here's the crazy thing. For the Big Bang to work 15 billion years ago, you would have had to have so many laws of physics instantly start to work for it not to all just collapse in a hot fireball and be done. Where did those laws even come from? They would have had to pre-exist. They can't be created at the moment of the Big Bang because that's not going to work. They already have The dials have to be somewhere to be honed into the specific thing. The laws of math already have to exist somewhere. I mean, I know it's 8.30 at night on a Friday, but and, and my brain starts to like, it's like, how is this possible? These things actually start to point to the existence of God versus away from it. So that's part of the interpretation of the doubt. Sure. So, yeah. Thanks. Cool. Great question. Okay, other things. <clears throat> yeah. Procreation? Yeah, procreation. Oh, you're, like your parents? Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. So, um, do you think that procreation is a ripple effect of God uh, creating us in His image and giving us the ability to procreate? And, you know, we're just going on and on and on with that original ability? Or do you believe that God actually has control over the procreation of, of, uh, of life? I, I think I do. The question is about does does the ongoing act of procreating is that a carrying on of the original plan of God? That's yes. what He wanted us to do. Yes. Um, or is it His plan now? Is He still giving us the ability to procreate? Yes. Us over him, you mean? Us rather than him? Procreating because he gave us the ability to millions of years ago, or are we still procreating because he wants us to continue? Oh, I see. Did he build the machine and then let it just go, or is he still involved? Yeah. Are yeah. We a ripple effect, or are we? And the answer is yes. <laughs> Meaning, no, no, no. The answer is both. The answer is both. So it's like it's like saying um, 
it, I mean, it's it's one of the de- one of the deepest. Let me just take it into a realm, and you tell me if if, if it kind of hits on what you're talking about. One of the deepest kind of places you can go in your mind, and even biblically, the tension is the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man or people, people kind. Um, and so, uh, and so, the reality is is you have the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of people. And so, what do we do with that? Is it one or the other? And the Bible constantly goes both, like. Judas, God needed you to sell out Jesus so we could get to the cross. That was God's plan. But bro, you did it and you're going to be held responsible. Well, which one is it? Is Judas responsible or did God cause it? Yes. Right? And so it's kind of constant. Did Moses, Moses, you, you hardened your heart 10 times through the book of Exodus. You hardened your heart. I can't believe you hardened your heart. And then 10 times through the book of Exodus, God hardened his heart. It's like, well, which way is it? Yes. And so there's this sovereignty of God, responsibility of man that kind of hits together. And it's very hard to start pulling out and delineating those things. Um, so th- that kind of speaks to a little bit. I think in regard to procreation, I think based on the biblical view, uh, Psalm 139 and so on, God lets us procreate, but he's not a deistic, Christianity is not a deistic version of God where he creates the machine, creates the world and backs up and goes, okay, let's see how this goes down. And he's distant, kind of Bette Midler, right? That version, from a distance, <laughs> like that, like that's not Christianity, that's deism. He's just looking at this pale blue dot, trying to figure, I don't know what's going to go on down there. Who knows? I gave them all. I created the machine. Let's see where the machine goes. That's not it. It's, yes, he gave us the full right to procreate and the way to do it. And Psalm 139 said he's stitching us together in our mother's womb, each one of us individually. And so that it's both and. He gave us the ability, set up the machine, and he enters in and starts with the machine because that's how valuable it is to him. So, okay. <laughs> okay. Anything else? So yeah. you, you've obviously done a lot. I mean, we're diving down into the issue of the, like the problem of evil, right? With God, and how does that jive with God? Um, well, what are your thoughts on the, like, on what, what are theologians thinking about the origin of evil? Because, you know, if you think right back to prior to creation, where Satan was cast out of heaven, that, I mean, that's ultimately something that we'll never be able to understand, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, that's a very deep question. Theologians would uh, debate it. And so some would say, yeah, origin, origin of evil is that story about Satan being cast out of heaven. Some theologians would go, ah, that's a little bit more informed by Milton's Paradise Lost in the Bible. I don't really think those texts are actually about that. And the interesting thing is, I, when you read Genesis 3, um, Adam and Eve are sitting there. They get this mandate, go, have, go, go procreate, uh, have lots of sex, fill the earth, and I made you naked. So, I mean, praise God. So... Uh, that that's like that's like biblical, right? Like, and then this snake crawls out of nowhere and goes, "Hey, everyone!" Starts talking. I don't know if it's like Narnia. I don't know what's going on. They're talk. I don't know if all the animals are talking at this point. I have no idea. The horses are talking. I don't know what's happening. But this snake's talking, and no one's questioning it. 
Where did he come from? There's nothing in Genesis 3 that tells us where he's just there. And I think part of the tension is I don't know that the Bible actually tells us the origin of evil. I think it may actually leave it vague. Almost like, what am I telling you this for? It's like Job. What are you asking questions? You, you, don't you know? What, where were you at creating hippopotamus? Stop asking me where evil came from. Just deal with life. Right? It's almost like that. And so I don't know that the Bible gives us an origin story of evil. If you take the side of the scholars who say those passages in Isaiah and those things are about Satan's fall from heaven because he wanted to be God and, and so on and so forth, if that's what those passages are about, then that's probably the closest we have is this angelic being wanted to be God. He was part of this and God cast him out and that's where evil came from. If that's not about that and that's more of a historical reference point to the prophets and so on, then we literally may not have a story about the origin of evil. reliability in the Bible. Because um, I know that there's different versions, even in the Christian um, agreement themselves, right? Like the Christian, like the, the Catholics have more books in their side than sure. other ones that, um, you know, there's other versions. So who, like, how do you know that it's reliable? How do you, how do you uh, so the question is about the reliability of the Bible and different yeah. versions, and how do we know? How can we actually rely on this yeah. on this book? Because yeah. obviously Christianity yeah. kind of rises and falls on the Bible being true, and and I talk a lot about um, in the book the different uh, data that's been done, whether it's archaeology that digs up that you have, you know, thousands of claims of historical reference points in the Bible, whether it's this king was ruling here and that happened over here and this city fell over here and uh, the archaeological work that's been done just tends to over and over again just vindicate these random historical claims about these cities that like so one of the one of the things is you have like these biblical claims so in John 5 for instance there's this discussion about uh, this pool and there's these pillars and you know it's this spot and Jesus does this and for years people got up and said the Bible isn't true because that doesn't exist no one's ever found it throw your Bible out and there's generations of people went yep no John's John's not historical and then they dug a little deeper and they found it I've been there I went to Israel actually went to this place and, uh, and you see, it's kind of like over and over and over again. You have a generation of people who drop kicked their Bible and walked away from it because we didn't dig deep enough yet with a tractor. And then when we dug, the Bible was vindicated again. And it was like, oh, what happened to that generation of people who walked away from their Bible based on this claim? That's actually quite sad. And so you got to take the whole thing and go, okay. If all of these, Josephus continuously goes, yes, this king was in power when Luke said he was, and this happened, and this happened, over and over and over again. So there's the archaeological stuff that just gets, the Bible's just vindicated over and over again. The historical claims, it's it's vindicated over and over again. Um, of course, there's people say, well, you can't trust it because there's uh, contradictions in it. And so I talk, I, I give three or four case studies in the book about so-called contradictions that aren't really contradictions and why you can trust it. And the, those contradictions aren't actually contradictions. Um, and then there's claims, there, the scholars come at the Bible and they go, you know, 
why I think it's probably what actually happened is because it's so counterintuitive, meaning it's so actually counterproductive to what the gospel writers would ever want to do. So, for instance, if you're going to draw Jesus as an ultimate hero and you want everybody to believe that he's the greatest thing that ever existed, why are you putting in stories where he doesn't know stuff? Where they're like, hey, Jesus, do you know when you're coming back? No, I have no idea. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I thought you said you were God. Yes, I'm God. Do you know everything? I know everything. When are you coming back? I don't know. Father knows. I don't have a clue, actually. What are you talking about? You just argued for 15 chapters that you know everything and that you're God. Now you don't know stuff. Mark chapter 6 says you can't heal people in a village. Like, can't. What do you mean can't? Oh, they didn't have enough faith. You're on the cross talking to yourself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who's talking? Why are you talking to yourself? You're sweating in the garden of Gethsemane saying, can you take this mission from me? Whatever you do, don't put your hero in a position where he's doubting his own mission. Right at the end, make him like, if you're making these stories up, just make him like he knows everything. He's Braveheart. You know how he ended his life? He just went into Rome and went, kill me, kill me, I'm not scared. And he floated around and everyone did his good. He doesn't. He goes, okay, I'm freaking out. I'm sweating blood. I'm stressed. Can God, can you just give this cup to somebody else because I don't want to do this anymore? He's terrified. Don't put your hero in like that. Whitewash it. Make it perfect. Make So there's no doubt. Don't, what? so people look at the, 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 the gospel writers and they're like, one writer says there was two angels at the tomb at the resurrection. Another author says there's one contradiction. Or there's two levels. First is one of the gospel writers is actually telling us that one of the angels spoke. He's not telling us how many were actually there. He's just saying one of them spoke. There could have been 40 in his gospel. He's just saying, hey, one of them actually talked. And where there's one, where there's two, there's always one. So that's good. But, but, but then there's another level where you're like, if you, if you were the early church and all you wanted to do was make up a religion, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, can you please get in a room and figure out how many angels you want to put at the tomb? Can you at least get together and get your story right? Because this is going to be way better for the next 2,000 years. So no one goes, hey, Matthew said what? He said two. Just make it all the same. Then we all get the same story. So scholars, ancient scholars who actually study this stuff, look at the Gospels and they go, the fact that these things even give a gap of possible disagreement makes them more legitimate because they didn't get together and whitewash it and all get together. We have the exact same story. Everything is, and that's why you have these tensions in the, in the gospels all the time. People go, look, it says, so when I was at Bible college, I read this story and Jesus told a parable about something and he had this detail in it in Luke. And I remembered that it was different in Matthew. And I went into my, uh, my college professor and I threw my Bible on the ground. I went, Bible contradicts itself. I don't believe it. And he's like, why is it? I said, look at the language here and the language here. He said there was two slaves, but now over here he says there's four. It's all, it's all nonsense. And he said, okay, let me ask you a question. He goes, you're a preacher, right? I said, yeah, I'm getting into it. I preach. He goes, so when you preach at that church, did you ever tell a story? Yeah. And then when you preach at that church, did you ever tell a story? Yeah. With the details of that story exactly the same every time you told it, if you're trying to make a point. Well, no. Like, were there four flowers in that story you told versus two? Yeah, probably. Don't you think he probably told these stories more than once? He has three years of ministry. Maybe Luke's telling it on a time he said it in March, and Matthew's telling it at the time he said it in July. They're telling different... What are you getting... And I was like, oh my... So it's it's this moment of, you gotta... We always have to ask, 
what is the filter I'm coming at this thing? This is why scholars actually look at the Bible and go, over and over again, we actually trust it. It almost, the resurrection, women are the first ones at the tomb affirming this historical event, which is going to have to be the key historical event for all of Christianity for all time. And women, their testimony wasn't even allowed in a court of law. If you're making up the resurrection story, get men to be there who are religious leaders. I confirm the tomb was rolled away and the body shall not pass. <laughs> or whatever. Like I, <laughs> I, I, I see it. I saw it. I confirm it. Get Okay, get this Pharisee up on trial. Was it? Yeah, it was empty. Don't get women to show up there and go, I saw it. Because no one even believes them. And so scholars look and they go, you know what this almost sounds like? It almost sounds like they're just telling us what happened. Like there's no agenda. They're not whitewashing the story. They're just like, these two ladies showed up. And it's fascinating. You read the the Easter story and they start telling people the skeptical theory about what actually happened. The first thing out of their mouth is, someone's moved the body. Where did they put them? And it's like, shut up with that. You're going to make everyone doubt the resurrection. Get Delete that. You're giving people reasons not to believe it. So people look at the Bible, they're like, I don't know. The tensions actually make me trust it. People who know how to study ancient literature. We sit around in our 2018 drinking our lattes, you know, going, I know what it is. It's that the Bible's made up by a group of people, and this is what I believe about things. It's like, when's the last time you were a, a, a theologian of medieval literature? So people who actually are, C.S. Lewis was, he studied medieval poetry and he worked at Oxford and before he ever became a Christian, he goes, I read the gospels and the thing that freaked me out about them is they are like nothing else that was written at that time. It didn't, that, the, the gospel, what we read now, didn't even exist back then. That's not, you go read Beowulf, you read, you read all these stories, uh, the, the, the stories of the Babylonians and how they fought and everything. No one tells a story where they're like, there was a cushion in the back of the boat and he went to the back of the boat and he laid his head. That kind of detail actually didn't exist. The Gospels created a genre that they weren't just making, they were just telling a story. And C.S. Lewis goes, it was that that actually made me go, there might actually be legitimacy here. Nothing is like this in antiquity. There's such a uniqueness here. So anyway, so that's a few reasons why people actually trust the Bible. Wouldn't the world be better without religion? Yeah. Do you see Christians as um, kind of like what, what um, inspired you or compelled you to gravitate towards Christianity? Was it like more of a crutch? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, what compelled me to, to work Christianity was more of a crutch. Wouldn't the world be better without religion? So, um, so actually, for me, it was the opposite. Uh, as a 17-year-old kid who wanted to do everything a 17-year-old kid does without Jesus, you know, uh, parties, I was, I was doing it all. Drugs, everything you can do. What do 17-year-old kids do when their parents aren't around and they don't have Jesus watching over them? That was my life. When I became a Christian, it was the opposite to a crutch. Because what it did was actually violate my ability to do what I wanted. It was actually harder it was a cost for me to go, okay, I can't do whatever I want to do with my sex life anymore. I can't do whatever I want. I can't. 
one Friday night, I'm smoking weed in my buddy's uh, uh, garage, and we're all getting hammered and high, and it's party night. Four nights later, I'm in there defending Christianity to 30 high people. Now I still got high because we shut the garage door. But there was, there was this move. There was this, there was this move that I had to like. It was, it was the opposite to a crutch. I, I wasn't old and filled with a terminal disease. I was had my life ahead of me. I was fine. I was like, let's have a party for the rest of my life. And then Jesus interrupted and was like, and that, so ask a high school kid, what would be easier for them today? Be a Christian or not? 10 out of 10 will say way easier to not be a Christian. Opposite to a crutch in that sense, a cost to it. On the, on the first part, which is a very legitimate question, I've tried to process that a lot. And I, and I think the answer is no. Um, and I think the meaning would be, would the world be better without religion? And the reason is, is because I think, think about the other options and what we would lapse, lapse into. Um, it's been tried. And so classic uh, secular atheistic Marxist theory said, religions hurt so many people throughout the ages. There's all these religious wars. We should eliminate religion for people in society, and that'll clear everything up. The problem is, and all I have to go on is the data of the past, so I can't tell what the future would hold. The problem is every state that established itself like that killed tens of millions of people, whether it was Stalin or the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia or whatever it is. Atheism actually ended up being a philosophy that that allowed people uh, a kind of elimination, a genocidal elimination of people. Because, of course, you, know, you think of Martin Luther King Jr. When he's in prison, letters from Birmingham jail, and he's trying to inspire white people to treat black people to be equal. What does he draw? Well, atheism ain't going to help him. Because atheism is going to go, by the way, if you can enslave a race and win, go. The stronger kill the weak, man. That's life. That's what animals do. It's like, oh, you're weak. Crush you. I got to get ahead. So I got to eliminate atheism. That's not going to help us love our fellow man. It's going to make me crush him to get ahead. So what does he do? He draws on the prophets. He draws on the Bible. He says, let justice roll down. He said, why don't we treat each other with equality? Because Genesis 1 says that every human being is made in the image of God. That's why you shouldn't rape people. That's why you shouldn't have genocide. And so I actually think the opposite is true. I think religion at least gives us, sure, historically people have fought over land and blown each other up and there's been violence. There's no doubt about that. But atheism wouldn't eliminate that. Um, Because I think what starts to happen, and this is what philosophers say, um, uh, a guy named Alistair McGrath talks about the idea that if you eliminate God from a conscience of a person or a society, Everybody will transcendentalize something. So uh, we, we need to make a god of something. We have to. So what some people have done is they've, they've said the state is God. So that's where all the, our reliance is, is the state. Well, of course, people in power love that, and they'll just eliminate people who question them. And then other people say, well, the markets, they're God. They're what really drive history, and so Adam Smith and so on, and capitalism, that's really... So people aren't ever going to eliminate sorry, the, the connection to the trans, the things that transcend, they're just going to replace God with something else. And historically speaking, if you go back, when we replace God with something else, it actually goes far worse. If you compare the number of people that the Inquisition, 
and uh, the, the fights of Islam and Christianity in medieval times, the amount of people that killed is a drop in the bucket compared to what we did in the 20th century based on atheistic philosophies. Like, at the time, like we're talking about Mao killed 50 to 60 million people. There wasn't even that amount of people almost on the entire planet when Muslims and Christians were fighting with swords trying to like, give me this land, I'm going to cut you. It was awful that they did it. But it didn't kill even close. Religion hasn't killed even close to the amount of people historically that other philosophies like atheism or agnosticism have when you give the state the power to think that way. So anyway, I say all that to say I don't know what the future would hold, but I know what the past has held when we've tried to replace religion with something else. Does that make sense? Great question. I want to be conscious of the time too. 8.15. Maybe a couple more questions, Gail, or what would you like? I got some more questions. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more educational. Uh-oh. Okay. Yeah. You can be here Yeah, so, so, um, so the question was, how do Muslims say that Jesus wasn't the Son of God? Why do they say that, basically? And, and what, what is it that makes their, their faith believable about, like, did they miss with God? And they say that Muhammad was later, and so he was better, or you know what I mean? Right. How do they, how do they answer to the... The the quote-unquote magic stuff. Well, uh, so Muslims recognize Jesus as one of the great prophets. Um, And again, all my Muslim, you know, philosophy might not be completely clear in my brain. You know, right now it's been a while since I delved into it. But from what I understand, they they believe he was one of the prophets. Uh, At the end of the day, Muslims are people of the book, like Christians are with the New Testament, like Jews are with the Old Testament. So what's going to inform their philosophy? It's going to be the Quran. So the Quran says the idea that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin is the son of God is blasphemy over and over and over again. So that's why they believe it. Because the Quran says it multiple, many, many times. The fact that this idea that he's, this, that he's divine, that he's God, it's, it's a complete blasphemy. You can't believe that. That's all. Even the book of Numbers in the Old Testament says God is not a man. So that's why the Jews are like, kill this guy. He's blaspheming. Look at him. He's saying he's the son of God. Get rid of him. Um, so that's, at the end of the day, a Muslim believes what the Quran teaches. So that's why they believe what they believe about Jesus. It says he was a great prophet. Um, and then, of course, Muhammad. It's like what we, it's like what a Christian believes about Jesus in the New Testament and how it supersedes or critiques or evolves the Old Testament, right? Like, like none of us think, that getting a tattoo is going to send you to hell, right? I assume. So, like, uh, but that's an Old Testament. Like, Jesus has a tattoo in Revelation 19. It says that that on his leg, it says that he's the king of kings and lord of lords. Anyway, that's my proof text for why you got a tattoo. I'm not sure that's what the text is about. But uh, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, it says, 
you can't get a tattoo. Like, you're part of a pagan thing. So, like, so, but Jesus came, and because Christ is the Spirit, a lot of those Old Testament laws, are they have their time and they're done. We don't follow those anymore. You can't even wear cotton that's mixed with polyester or whatever in the Old Testament, or you're, you're gone. Um, but we don't live like that. Why? Because Jesus came and he did a new thing. And some of that stuff that was cultural and focused on a geopolitical national reality are, are superseded by Jesus. He came and he died on a cross. The veil of the temple was torn. Temple doesn't matter anymore. Land doesn't matter anymore. Now it's about Christ and the spirit. You don't need to worry. So my buddy actually has a tattoo of that passage in Leviticus that says you're not allowed to have tattoos. So it literally says like Leviticus 2020 or whatever the passage is. People are like, What's that verse about? He's like, it's the verse in the Bible that says don't get tattoos. And they're like, why? And it strikes up a lot of conversations about what? About the fact that Jesus came and did a better thing. And that's the freedom we have. So that's what what Christians would say. Muslims simply go one step further and they say, then Muhammad got a further revelation and he adapted some of what Jesus did. So it's a third step where we would believe in the second step. So that's why they believe. Okay, next question. Yep. So we believe that um, as a as a, a race, as a human race, that if we accept um, Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that we are saved and that we will you know have a place in heaven. Uh, what about civilizations that don't have accessibility to Christianity? Are they not saved? Yeah, it's a good question. The question is, what about civilizations I've never heard about Christianity? Are they not saved? Because we believe, you know, you receive Jesus in your life, that's taken them. So uh, one of the things with that is, this is one of those kind of, uh, the Bible, kind of like that, 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 that Job-esque kind of, the Bible doesn't give us a detailed chapter on that. So you have to extrapolate. So the first thing to say is, um, God is a very gracious God who in Romans chapter one says there's going to be people who God judges based on what they had. What did they have? What, what kind of information did they have? I mean, he said in my hell chapter, uh, I talk about the idea that uh, it's a very biblical idea that there are probably levels in heaven. Now levels, I don't mean actually like, like actual physical levels, yeah, second story, third story, thank you. Uh, it's not Dante. It's it's levels, like experiences. Jesus talks about rewards, like if you do this with your money and you're generous and you're this, you're, you're banking up rewards in heaven. I think there's going to be people who experience a kind of joy and treasure in God more than other people. It's not just going to be one kind of Apple store where we're all just in a white room, static, like everything's the exact same. There's going to be levels of the glorious experience of God for Christians. In the same way, I think there's going to be levels of judgment and measures of judgment in hell for between the regular Joe, who just lived their life and whatever, and the extreme, and I, and I think that's biblical. I wouldn't come up with that concept of my own. I think Jesus consistently talks about this idea, which is why in every judgment passage in the New Testament, whether it's Romans 2 or John 5 or Revelation 21 or Matthew 25, every time they're like, what did you do with your life? What did you do with your life? That's not a question of how you get in. 
It's about what is your experience going to be like, whether you're in or out. Did you feed the hungry? Did you take care of the person who wanted water? You're a sheep or a goat. And so this question of, of levels, like, so you, so that's, that's part of it. We have a God who is fully just, and he's going to judge everybody based on their life, their experience, their heart, their malice in perfect order. And that's the beauty of him. Um, but thirdly, so I think they get judged on what they knew. So there might be a grace point there where it's like, like, for instance, I think, um, take the philosophy of, of a baby that, that it, let's say a baby gets to nine months and then dies. What happens? Well, a Christian would cite multiple passages in the Bible that say that baby went to heaven. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't have an age or understanding of any kind of accountability. And so David, when he loses his sons, I'm going to come and join you one day. Um, I think the same could be true about people who never hear based on a grace. Now, here's the delicate balance. And I don't want to overstate that point because I'm not actually sure the Bible teaches all of that. I'm I'm extrapolating out from a baby analogy. My fear in saying that is that we're going to then downplay what the Bible actually teaches, which is this. You better go. You better go everywhere. Go to the nations, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, end of the earth. You better go to the jungles. You better go across the oceans. I don't care if you get a disease and die. I don't care. You go because this is a missionary God who wants us to go, love people, tell them about Jesus, then meet their needs, hospitals, education. That's the beautiful thing about Christianity. Everywhere it goes, it it creates – people are constantly critical of Christianity. Like, Christianity, it's so oppressive. It also – makes almost every society it touches 10 times better than before it got there. 10 times. Whether it creates democracies, whether it, uh, it removes state church issues, it creates hospitals, education. Uh, uh, the university is a 12th century Christian invention. We wanted to go after knowledge to make people better. Missionaries give their life to give, help kids with diseases Christianity, everywhere it goes, it makes society better. Why is everyone like, oh, but you're, you know, you're exclusive. And it's like, yes, because Jesus was pretty exclusive when he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Yep, I've got to believe that. But it doesn't mean we're not going to help you. It means we're going to build you a hospital, whether you believe what we believe or not. Um, And so the challenge is if you come to a conclusion that, well, okay, societies don't really need to hear then we'll all just stay here drinking lattes. and But that's not the call. The calls for many people is go sacrifice for the good of people who haven't heard. And that's really the missional impulse of, of, uh, of the Bible. So hopefully that's helpful. Okay. Uh, you said you had another one? Yeah. Well, back to the uh, suffering. Yes. Yeah. I am. Still have issues with that. I, I remember reading this chapter like two, three times, the evil and suffering. Yes. And uh, in there, I don't mean to quote your book or anything. Yeah, yeah, no, it's fine. But <laughs> in order to stop evil, a God would have to violate uh, human free will. And then you ask the question, or what if stopping an evil act today would set in motion a butterfly effect that would cause a great artist or scientist not to be born in the future? To me, that's you're just throwing a what if question. And there could be a thousand different what ifs. Yeah. Like, I, I still don't believe it's free will because in matters of, say, children mm-hmm. as victims, 
they never had a chance. Where was their free will? Well, fr free will is more about the agent that's doing the act, not the person being acted upon. But that child, whether it be abuse at a young age, yes. it's going to have an effect. Whether yeah. it can go two ways, sure. it can be good, or it can turn to prostitution, addiction, drugs, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Because of what they're exposed to at such a young age. hundred percent. Right. A lot of, you know. People, yeah. Yeah. Like. And, and all that, and all, all that I'm saying is. I don't think Christianity is going to be able to answer every single one of those cases in detail. But I will say, look at the frameworks and try to figure out which one answers them the best. So, for instance, atheism isn't going to answer that question very well. Thank you. Right? Left, left to ourself, we are um, survival of fittest. Uh, we are machines. We are actually, it's funny actually, you know, Darwinian, Darwinian philosophy um, is about determinism. We, we are actually don't, there's no free will in Darwinian philosophy. We're animals that act by instinct. That's it. Everything we do, everything we think has been programmed into our brain through hundreds of thousands of years of acting. That's not free will. That's determinism. That's the definition of determinism. We're animals. And so... We don't have any kind of free will at all. We do what animals do. Um, so, for instance, uh, Steven Pinker, who's an atheist and a Darwinian philosopher, there, I tell the story in the book uh, back in the 90s. There was a girl in New Jersey who, and you probably remember this in the book. What's that? The prom one. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And she had a baby at prom in the bathroom, strangled it, threw it in the garbage, and went back out and continued in her dance. And Steven Pinker wrote a paper, and he said, why are we all freaking out about this? This is called infanticide, and our grandmothers, grandmothers, grandmothers have been doing this for hundreds of thousands of years. You have to kill the weakest in the litter so the stronger can survive. It's a courageous move that's been wired into our brain through evolutionary development. We have no choice in the matter. It's what is best for human flourishing. That's determinism. We, if you take Darwinism to its furthest degree, we could, that guy on trial could go, sorry, I know I abused these kids, but kind of what I'm determined to do. So all that I'm saying is go through the different philosophical options. They're all not great, but I think Christianity is the best and gives the most hope for the reasons I talked about earlier. That's, that's my conclusion. You, you don't have to be convinced of it here. I'm just saying that's because go to Islam and ask what they ask. Go to Hinduism, ask what they how they answer. Go to atheism, go to agnosticism, go to Buddhism, and then ask the question, which one of these actually deals with this in a way where I can sleep at night? I don't know that any of them do to the point where I'm totally comfortable understanding why 250,000 people can die in an incident of tsunami. But I see the most hopeful in the story of Jesus and the resurrection out of all the options. Just the victim, child, yes. they're the helpless one, right? Like, okay, I can yes. see totally. the perpetrator, whatever karma, yeah. it will come get him in the future, whatever it might be, right? He did a bad act. But those innocent kids, what did they do to deserve that, right? And that's and, and where the, I'm lost. And the Bible, and this is, so again, so if, if you were in a karmic philosophy, the kids are actually a product of what karma is doing. 
from a past life in Christianity, when someone came up to Jesus and said, why is this man born blind? Was it the sin of him or his parents? Is karma real? Jesus' answer was, it wasn't the sin of him or his parents. What are you guys talking about? That's not a thing. And so Jesus directly counters karma. The gospel counters karma. Karma says you get what you deserve. I mean, I lots of my friends think like that. They're like, you know, and, and we're from Vancouver. That's like the king of karma. That's like you go over to the island and you go into a coffee shop like this. They have a tip jar. They call it the karma jar. That's what they call it. You guys should take it. Because you throw a tip in there, boom, something good's going to happen to you. Because what happens? What you do comes back to you. You get what you deserve. You put good positive thoughts out into the universe. This is Oprah, right? It's the power of positive thinking. You want a boat? Here's the power. Just sit to yourself and go, boat, 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 boat. Put a picture of a boat on your fridge. Look at it every day. I deserve a boat. I deserve a boat. And the law of attraction, which is built into the universe, has to return it for you. That's what karma says. Jesus goes, eh. False. Here's what the gospel says. You get what you don't deserve. I got what you deserve. You deserve, you're selfish, you're sinful, you make choices that are all about you, but don't worry about it. I came and took on any kind of vengeance that was going to come from God to you. I came and took it on myself. So you actually get what you don't deserve. That's the beautiful part of the gospel and where it differs from karma. And that's where in the book I, I quote Bono, and that's where Bono, you know, lead singer of you too, for those of you a little younger, um, <laughs> That's what made him go, man, Christianity is so different. In every other religion, I as a rock star, and what I've done, I'm going to get hammered. Because I am not a good man. But in Christianity, I see a guy who took on everything that I deserve for me and gives me what I don't deserve. And so I agree with you. I think those kids, because of Christian philosophy, are victims to an awful scenario and, and Jesus, the beautiful, there's this doctrine that the old, the old timers used to talk about, about the cross of Christ, and it's called expiation. And it's the idea that the cross of Christ not only forgives you for the sins that you've done, but the sins that have been done to you. I use this in counseling all the time. People come, they're sexual assault victims. The cross of Christ is the most hopeful thing you can give them. Don't give them karma. Don't give those kids karma. Because that means they deserved it. Give them Jesus who took away the sins that were done to them. So I'm just saying in the marketplace of ideas, I find that to be the most hopeful. That's all I'm saying. Does it answer every single? It doesn't, but that's the closest I can get. Okay, yeah. I got one more. Okay. It's a little bit multi-layered. Because the other ones you asked weren't. That's cool. Um, so when Jesus Level for eternity, how would how would you ever 
Um, so you, you don't get to an angelic or celestial plane ever because we're human. So there's different creatures. There's God, there's the sun, there's angels, there's people. And so that's it. There's no, people don't become angels. People are people. What resurrection is, and this is true about Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, it teaches the ultimate hope is not disembodied bliss. The ultimate hope of the Christian story is actually resurrection. It's re-embodiment. It's the fact that uh, we were physical, that went bad, but then God didn't change the rules and go, oh boy, I'll just make them disembodied spirits forever and they'll sit on a cloud and diapers and you know, that's the concept of heaven that's killed Christianity because it makes us all go, who wants to do that for the rest of eternity? Um, it says, no, actually, resurrection, physicality, uh, re-embodiment. Jesus is the first fruits, the prototype of that reality. He died, he resurrected, and there was, um, I don't mean to get too technical, but just to answer your question, there was a continuity and a discontinuity to who he was after he resurrected. So um, there were moments where they didn't recognize him, but the text says it's because he he was hiding himself, like incognito. So Luke 24, they're like, who are you? And he's like walking along the road 10 minutes. He's like, I don't know who I am. Who are you guys? What's going on? And he kind of just having this conversation because he wants to hide himself. But when he's with the disciples, he goes, they're like, oh my goodness, it's you. And he's like, yeah, feel my side. Look at my hands. There's a continuity to who he was. But the discontinuity is he's he's in this like new mode of being. He can like walk through walls and boom, you know, whatever. And so that's the prototype for what new creation is going to be like. It's There's a continuity with the physical. We're going back to a physicality, but it's going to be kind of a glorified physicality. And uh, it's going to be like we get to a party and we're like, oh, I recognize the party. Oh, but that's crazy. I never thought that. Like, there's going to be this thing about it. So, so that's what, so just to be clear, it's not resurrection theology in Christianity and Judaism and Islam is not, uh, it's not reincarnation theology or philosophy. There is no reincarnation in those things. There's animals, there's people, there's angels, there's God, and never the four shall meet. <laughs> uh, those things don't interconnect. Um, and so does that make sense? And so literally what we're talking about is, is Jesus gets resurrected. All human beings will be resurrected. Some to eternal punishment, some to eternal life. That's the, the kind of final state of things, but it's not us becoming angels. That's we, we never, we never shift into angels are set. That's done. Then there's people. That's the biblical teaching. Yeah. Yeah. They don't even want to hear what is actually true or even take a second to read or look into it. They just, because society tells me that this is what Christianity is like, I'm going to believe 
that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that I think that there's um, we always all of us have to look into the thing behind the thing. Right? What's the motive of why I'm either gravitating towards something or gravitating away from something? Like the actual motive, not like the surface level, not the thing I'm saying. Forget that. That's usually nonsense. The thing I actually don't like. And so for people, one of the big issues, for instance, I have a whole chapter on sex. Everybody always tells me it's the only book on defending Christianity I've ever read in the chapter on sex. No one wants to talk about that. But I'm telling you, it's probably the biggest issue in our city. The reason the regular Joe is not coming to my church in the city of Vancouver ain't because he figured out the Big Bang. It's because he doesn't want to surrender. He wants to sleep around. That's it. He doesn't like the biblical ethic that it's marriage and marriage only. It's like, you know, I want to get on Tinder and swipe three times this week. So that's the issue behind the issue. So I think it's getting into real conversations with people. Well, don't give me this like you think there's some contradiction about Judas hanged himself and then his body must open an axe. Therefore, I don't believe in the Bible. It's like, that's not why you don't believe in Christianity. It's because you want the full autonomy of your life. You want the autonomy of your life so much that you will construct a worldview that says what she just texted you. Based on what? There's no authoritative story that told her that. So that's a faith position. Everybody in this room has a faith position. Even people. So she does. She doesn't think she does. She's like, so So I, my family, my grandmother passed away last summer. And so uh, she had suffered for a lot of years. And my whole family is not a non-Christian, right? So, so I fly home to do her funeral. And they all say to me, you know, Mark, it's so bad that you have these faith positions. Based on what? This gap, this mystery. You believe things that you can't prove. How dare you? We're post-enlightenment. We only believe the objective things that we all know are clearly true. That's how we live our life. But you, you believe crazy stuff and you've come up with these faith positions. So I get home and my family's sitting around. They said, well, thank goodness she's not suffering anymore. Stop. How do you know that? Who told you? How do you know she's not suffering worse? You just made a statement about the afterlife. You told me a metaphysical belief that you have about what happens when you die. But you don't know that. Where did you get this? Well, I got it from sitting around with people deducing things about the world as I walk around that sound really good to a Canadian in 2018 who likes to drink Starbucks every day because this is my philosophy. This is the philosophy I've constructed and it does well for me. But there's no authoritative story. There's no text informing that story. There's no narrative that is ever going to bump up against that because if something bumps up against it, they just change it. Well, that's terrifying because in that moment, you are such a product of your cultural moment. Be very careful. Here's what I mean. My grandfather's 96 years old, okay? He says stuff that's crazy because that's what older people believed. Like, like, we'll be sitting around and he'll say stuff about my friends, like about other races. And I'll be like, goodness, Good thing I didn't, like, bring my friends over of another race. My goodness, you sound like you're coming out of the 1920s. Stop talking. Now, fast forward 30, 40 years from now. That's going to be us. 
And our grandkids are going to go, don't listen to her. She's crazy. Can you believe she actually believes that stuff? Be very careful to not be such a product of your historical moment that you elevate it above a story and a narrative that actually transcends that story. We're, we're all reading the teleprompter of our culture. We're taking cues from every time we go past a billboard, our politicians, CNN, Fox News, whatever, choose your, you know, whatever your news. We're all building worldviews and faith positions every moment. It's the people who aren't self-aware about the fact that they're doing it that actually give me, keep me awake at night. Because I at least want your sister, I think it was your sister, to admit you constructed a worldview based on what you what is good for you in the moment. You can change it on a dime. Do you recognize how terrifying that is? And at least have that conversation. And then you can get to the point where you ask the question, is the Bible really this? Let's delve into it together. Which passages? And what you're going to find is oftentimes, going back to the Leviticus thing, it's stuff that's like... Oh, yeah, no, no, yeah, that is crazy. But there's a difference between descriptive texts and prescriptive texts in the Bible. So just because God says this happened doesn't mean he said, here, I'm going to prescribe it. This is what you should do. It's just this happened. That's different than a Bible teaching. Do this. This is right. This is wrong. He's just saying, oh, this, these people chop those people up. And, you know, he's not saying, no, everybody go out and do that. So um, anyway, being able to kind of hover around that conversation and really dig in what's the thing behind the thing let's go to those passages together and see what it really teaches and then we can work through that stuff together is important but helping them be self-aware yeah, yeah. What, what troubles me that that's a very common perspective and it's everywhere but with that what your sister is reacting to i think she's absolutely right in reacting but she, she thinks she's reacting to scripture she's not she's reacting to kind of what Andy Stanley talks about as temple model Christianity, denominational Christianity. She, right. she was taught that as a kid, mm-hmm. right? You went to church, your parents didn't really met, maybe live out their faith, but you had to go to church, and there was a lot of hypocrisy in that. Sure. And that's the reaction. That's that's the cue that our uh, our culture is taking. Yeah. It's not, that's the trouble, and, that, yeah. and that, that's what we're fighting against. Right. Cool. Okay, we've got one more question. Here. Uh, anyone else? Okay. <laughs> Mine's a little out there. I'm just wondering. Come back to the alien. It actually kind of relates to your sister's question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course. About uh, homosexual, like Christians are supposed to be accepting of everybody. Yeah. Whatever you believe. Yeah. yeah. Including sexual orientation. Right. And uh, we were going to a church before Connexus, mm-hmm. Christian church, mm-hmm. and totally set against it. We don't want any gays or something wrong with them. The lesbians, this and that. We will change them, we'll fix them, we'll get them counseling. And that was kind of the reason I left that church mm-hmm. and went to Connexus. Mm-hmm. And I ended up, uh, was in a starting point. I don't know if you know what that is. No. It's like new beginners go for an eight-week program. Okay. And uh, one of them, a few of them were lesbian. They said we came here because this is the one of the few churches that will accept us. Right. Um, so what's your view on the whole uh, homosexuality? I don't know if it's in line with Connexus or... Like, why yeah. is there so much variation with that belief in Christianity? I guess it's different interpretations of the Bible, yeah. but... So, so here's how I would... I would come at it by saying, I have a... Um, we have gay couples in our church, married um, in Vancouver. Yeah. And so, but they know where I stand on it. It's because here's the issue. I think 
Uh, and this is my, I don't know Conexus or Carrie's view on this at all. So this is just, this is just me and, and what, what our church talks about. Um, coming back to this question, I have an authoritative story that I have to submit to. I don't get to piecemeal a worldview together and think, well, today I feel this way, so now I'm going to think this. I have this text called the Bible, like a Muslim does with the Quran. You can't, you can't really choose and go, well, I, I like this today or I like that today. So I go back to that authoritative story and I go, okay, what does it say? And uh, Romans chapter 1 talks about the idea that homosexual relationships are not the way that God planned it, male and female, right from Genesis 1 and 2. There's this binary reality that happens in creation, light, dark, water, earth, male, female. And he creates this, this binary reality, he puts it in creation in order to give a picture to the world about the gospel, which is there is a bride and groom. There is Jesus in the church, which is going to climax in a great wedding at the end of all things. And every marriage, this male-female marriage thing is a picture of the gospel to the world. So if I, have a, if I have a narrative that's pointing me there, I have to submit to that narrative and say, okay, this is the way God set it up. Um, and so that's what I submit to. But the reality is, you read Romans 1, there's a list of stuff that's not the way God wanted it to be. And included in that list is gossip, disobeying your parents. Uh, it's, it's, all, it's all of us in this room, everybody. And so my church knows when I get up, I'm like, guys, I'm the most messed up, broken sinner in here. And every story I tell, if you, li- if you listen to my preaching, one of my philosophies is don't make yourself the hero of every story. Tell stories that make you look dumb. And so part of my thing is I'm actually the disaster in most of the stories because I'm full of those sins, those same sins. And that's that, that kind of brokenness and dependence on the grace of God and what Jesus has done for me is the reason people can exist in the church and go, okay, He's walking through this. He's not compromising what the text says. He's not saying everybody's okay because that would mean I would have to sit and go, okay, um, so so I met with someone. They're like, well, I want to commit adultery. Okay. So why do you want to do that? Because I feel like it's right. Okay. But can we have a conversation about whether it is right? So I, in my church, I'm not going to let, I'm not going to get up and preach and not say, this is this adultery. That's not the way God actually designed things. And so in the same way, my church knows that we preach the Bible. We have this authoritative story that defines these issues for us. But we want to walk with everybody. So people come to me there all the time. They're like, hey, I've given you a few facts about my marriage. Can I get divorced now? Can I get the pastoral stamp on my divorce? Because he's been a real jerk the last, you know, last weekend. Right? And so can you just email me? Because I've given you the math equation. So this... And so what I do is I say, I don't, I never write an email answering that question. And I don't write an email answering this question. What I do is I say, come in. I want to talk to you. I want to hear about your life. I want to figure out who you are. What is your marriage scenario? What actually happened? What did he do? Let's talk to him. Let's delve into, this is what Jesus did. He incarnated. He came down and he entered in. He said, let's journey together. Let's figure it out. So um, I wouldn't, so some churches would go down the route and go, Uh, this thing's not an issue anymore. I wouldn't say that. I would say it's still an issue biblically. It's not the way God designed it. It's in a list of sins 
to which I'm guilty too. So let's all admit we're all guilty of these things together and start talking about the grace of Jesus and what he actually requires of us, of our life. So I don't know if that connects this position or not, but that's how I process the question. So.